What is up, Bitcoiners? This is CK, and I have another episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. This week, I sit down with James Oburn, and we talk about everything that is happening in Bitcoin development and macro and so, 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 so many things. Uh, guys, this was a really wide-ranging conversation. James is a longtime developer in the Bitcoin core space, but he is very, very much a kind of macro economist trader and he has a lot of views and opinions and experience so i think you guys are really going to like this interview before we get into it though i want to tell you guys about the bitcoin 2021 conference the bitcoin 2021 conference is going to be june 3rd 4th and 5th in miami the third is going to be our vip special day called whale night there's also going to be a vip section called the deep throughout the conference for those vips but guys the full conference, the two-day event, the 4th and the 5th, Bitcoin 2021 is going to be absolutely amazing. And we are absolutely going to be selling out. This is going to be the Bitcoin event of a lifetime. It's maybe the last Bitcoin event that is like kind of in between Bitcoiner and just mainstream. Like This might be that perfect mesh because after this, we're just going to the moon. Bitcoin is not going to be niche anymore. And this is going to be the Bitcoin event of the year. Bitcoiners have been cramped up for all of 2020 and they are ready for an in-person event in Miami. For those of you who can't join, you can get on and watch the stream, but it won't be the same as being there in person. Use code Satoshi when you check out to get 10% off just for being a Bitcoin Magazine listener. Again, that is code Satoshi, all caps. Get 10% off. I will see you guys in Miami. All right, without further ado, let's get into this awesome conversation with James O'Byrne. Bitcoiners, I have a real treat for you. I'm sitting across virtually from a Bitcoin core contributor and just hacker and builder in the space, James O'Byrne. James, welcome to Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. CK, thanks a lot for having me, man. It's great to be here. So, James, many Bitcoiners know who you are. I'm sure there's a lot of new Bitcoiners who don't know who you are. I guess just to start this off, you know, who is James Oborn? What's kind of like the 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 high level perspective on, you know, what you do in the space right now? Yeah, sure. So that's an interesting question. I, I don't think I've been asked to answer recently. So let me try and spool up uh, a good summary here. Well, I guess to say in short, I've been following Bitcoin since 2011. And in 2015, finally decided to seriously get involved with Bitcoin Core, crack the code open and see what was going on and, and how I could potentially contribute. I, I come from a pretty conventional software engineering background at the time, although I guess I was kind of fortunate or had the, uh, the luck of kind of being predisposed as a libertarian prior to Bitcoin coming around. You know, growing up, I read a lot of the the, the, the typical canon. Well, at the time, it was more of a um, more of a burden, you know, than anything else. It's like you get into these like frustrating dorm room arguments and try and convince your you know pseudo socialist friends that actually government isn't the answer to anything, basically. Um, and and for a while, that was sort of a uh, that was a a disposition just fraught with frustration. But yeah, I grew up in in you know high school reading Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams and Ayn Rand and and all the stuff that young libertarians you know usually read. So I had a lot of priors coming into discovering Bitcoin, and so it immediately kind of made sense to me in an abstract point of view. But I I didn't have a lot of faith that it would actually kind of take off or or have much attention paid to it. I thought it would be 
kind of relegated to a you know an obscure corner of the internet. But obviously, it kept coming back. Price kept going up, which is you know ultimately sort of an indication of of the level of seriousness in the system. So by by 2015, you know after having watched it for a few years and bought some, figured it was time to to start really looking into how the code worked. And I was kind of fortunate enough to to find an issue at the time that was going on, which was that antivirus software was spuriously detecting viral signatures in the Bitcoin chain data. And so I kind of not having made any contributions prior to that, other than I think I have like a small patch in Electrum from maybe 2013 or 2014, where somebody at some point had been like printing the, the wallet password to standard out. And I was just kind of looking through the code and I was like, what would you, why would someone do this? But that was, that was just kind of a little, a little thing. And I guess, you know, maybe foreshadowed my affinity for, for auditing wallet software, which kind of continues to this day. But anyway, a so noble, I made that change in a noble affinity. Correct. If I can just jump in. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really important. And it's, it's something I think is kind of doesn't get enough, doesn't get a commensurate level of attention. I mean, it's, it's obviously hard to know how much auditing is actually going on unless people are, are checking in and, you know, doing semi-formal reports, but but so anyway, yeah, at the time I, I was a conventional software engineer. Funny enough, I was working for Balaji Srinivasan's genetics company, Council, which was a really fun place to work for a while. And so I got involved with Core at that point. Then, then the 2017 bull market happened. And I said, why, you know, why am I not working on Bitcoin full time? It doesn't make any sense for me. This, this is essentially, you know, if I had to pick kind of the condensation of what my intellectual life is about, it would be Bitcoin. So why the heck am I not doing this on a full-time basis? So at that point, I was lucky enough to have linked up with the chain code guys and they were putting on their second residency. So I was again, lucky enough to get a spot in that. And then I guess they could stand me enough to the point where they offered me a full-time spot in New York. And so I moved out there and spent two and a half years at chain code and and that was fantastic. I mean, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about sort of the that experience, but that was great. And then decided that I wanted to get back into kind of industrial Bitcoin development because I thought there was a lot to be done there. And so after somewhat of a false start going out to Tokyo, which was set to happen in April 2020 this past year, that obviously kind of got waylaid by the virus. So I've been fortunate enough to wind up working at Bitnomial, which is a, a futures exchange for Bitcoin. Okay, wait, so can we talk about Tokyo at all? Did you actually go out to Tokyo and what was like the intended purpose of that of that move? Yeah, so I had gone out to Tokyo a few times in the years past. First time for Dev Plus Plus, which is a Bitcoin conference that at least used to happen on a yearly basis. And so I had gone out to Tokyo Really, really enjoyed it out there. And then the following year went out for three weeks just to hang out in the country and got to know the guys at Digital Garage pretty well. You know, a lot of Bitcoiners will know the name uh, Kali Wolf and Nicholas Dorier, but really all the guys there at G DG Labs are hardcore Bitcoiners and they're a really great crew. So so I had actually engaged with DG and, and was set to go over there and, and start working kind of as a halftime core contributor, halftime, you know, industrial Bitcoin engineer. But, you know, for me, going to Japan was was going to be kind of a different, there were cross purposes there. I think Japan to me is a really fascinating place because you go over there and, and there seems to be this kind of cohesion or a sort of 
like things just function really well. You know, everybody that you run into has this kind of alacrity. They're, you know, excited to be doing what they're doing. Even the, even, you know, the guy in the train station giving you directions or whatever, probably like, you know, way overqualified. And uh, there's a kind of enthusiasm. There's a quiet enthusiasm in Japan, which I found really interesting because, you know, from an economic standpoint, they're so, they're, they're in such trouble and have been in such trouble for the past three decades. And so that was really something I wanted to investigate is like, why culturally do I find that this place seems to function so well? And yet, you know, from a monetary standpoint, you know, you just, you, you almost couldn't be in worse shape. So, th- so I wanted to do a kind of investigation in that. Um, and sadly, I have yet to, to be able to do that kind of in full, but that was the idea. Gotcha. Did you ever actually move out, make that move in April or did that just get kind of blocked completely? No. Yeah. The, the flight got canceled and gotcha. um, yeah. So since then I've been hanging out in the, in the, the rural Midwest. All right. Well, hey, it's a very Bitcoiner place to, to hang out. So I guess talk to us about, you know, what you're doing right now. You're working at a futures exchange based out of Chicago. What are they called? Bitnomial. Yeah. And um, not many people have actually heard of them in the Bitcoin space, even though it's it's a really it's a really cool company started and run by some serious Bitcoiners. But basically, Bitnomial is the only exchange cleared by the CFTC to do physical settlement of Bitcoin futures, which I didn't know from the outset, but is actually a really big deal that that kind of physical settlement versus the cash settlement that all the other existing futures exchange for Bitcoin do at the moment. The the physical settlement is really, really important because it allows market making activity to happen that, that, that wouldn't be maybe easy to do otherwise because of things like price slippage. So, you know, for example, if you want to hedge a big Bitcoin position and you buy a bunch of cash settled futures, and let's say you're short some some Bitcoin, if those cash settled futures settle and you get a bunch of cash and you need to go out and get a bunch of Bitcoin to cover your short position, then you could be in a position where you're actually bidding up the market, the Bitcoin market, and you see a big delta between the Bitcoin you were able to buy and the Bitcoin that you have a liability for. Whereas if that future settles and, and it's it's settled in Bitcoin natively, you don't have to worry about that conversion process from fiat to Bitcoin. So anyway, I, I think what Binomial is trying to do is is, is critical for, for the Bitcoin markets. So uh, I'm really happy to be there. Awesome. And I mean, I thought that like folks like Bact and maybe some other institutions were trying to deliver a Bitcoin settled futures, but sounds like that hasn't come to fruition. I don't know. Does Bax even have any customers right now? Like what, what even happened to them? You know, I'm, I'm not super certain. I would need to look. I, my impression is that they're actually like in operation, but the volumes are super low. Bact, as, as far as I understand it, and I'm talking now as kind of an individual, I'm not representing Bitnomial, you know, so, so don't take me seriously <laughs> in, in kind of professional capacity there. But my impression is that Bact has, has an interesting almost like GBTC-like model where they have this quote-unquote Bitcoin warehouse where Bitcoins go in, but they don't come out. And again, you know, the, the, the futures are, are, are cash settled as far as I know. So I, I just think maybe there's kind of a limited demand for cash settled futures because, again, you know, these market-making functions aren't as easy or desirable to pull off with, with the cash settled futures. But yeah, aside from the aside from stuff at Bitnomial, I do still continue to work on Bitcoin Core. 
in my spare time, I'm graciously funded by uh, a few individuals on GitHub or via GitHub sponsors. And then I've been doing a little bit of my own wallet development lately after, after kind of personally hunting around for a wallet tool that helps me sort of mitigate dependencies and um, mitigate untrusted, you know, code I haven't audited. It finally became clear that I just need to write my own thing. So I've been working on that too. Yeah. Matt was telling me about, about this little wallet project that you're working on. It's kind of on in the command line, right? Can you, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for a long time as a personal user, I would have an Electrum set up. And by setup, I mean, you know, there's like a whole stack of software that you have to get going if you want to actually manage your Bitcoin in a, in a sort of, you know, trust mitigated way. So you start off with Tor at the bottom layer because that gives you some reasonable privacy when you're submitting transactions to the network. Then you have obviously Bitcoin Core on top of that using Tor as a SOX proxy. And then to actually use Electrum under the model that the client software was written in, you have to be talking to an Electrum server, which is responsible for like taking in the blockchain data and, and you know, building data on top of that that allows the wallet itself to kind of quickly index into the transactions that might be relevant to you. So you have to install some software that provides what's called an Electrum personal server of which there are a few implementations. And then you have the Electrum software itself, which has a number of dependencies. So the upshot of all this is like, there's a tremendous amount of software involved in that, that you have to configure and manage. It's doable, but frankly, I found it to be kind of a pain. And I was concerned with the amount of code that I had to pull in to do all this stuff. And simultaneously, the the Bitcoin Core RPC API has come a long way. So for people who don't know, Bitcoin Core has this thing called a, a remote procedure call server or an RPC server. And that basically allows other programs to interact with Bitcoin Core without having to use the graphical interface. So this this kind of exposes a layer into Core that allows you to do various things, including wallet operations. And within the last few versions of Core, there have been a number of new commands introduced that allow you to make use of partially signed Bitcoin transactions and script descriptors and so forth. So I thought to myself, okay, like what is the minimum code necessary to provide me with like a halfway decent experience, like a convenient experience of, you know, doing all the stuff that I want to do with Bitcoin management, basically just receiving transactions and maybe sometimes sending transactions. What's, what's the bare minimum that I need to do that in, in a graphical way? You know, but but basically just using Bitcoin Core and minimizing the amount of code I'm pulling in that I haven't myself read. And so it turns out that you can get if depending on how technical you are, you can do basically everything you need to do with the Bitcoin Core RPC interface. But that's a pretty technical thing. And so I thought, well, it'd be really nice to come up with a, a program, a wallet that people who maybe are, you know, in a, in a very general sense, technical, you know, like they know how to use computers pretty well, but maybe they haven't spent a lot of time on the command line. And, and I know that when I was growing up in high school, you know, a lot of the ways that I learned Unix was just like kind of mindlessly following tutorials to set up things like media servers. And, you know, it was me essentially copy pasting commands that I found into the, the terminal. And so I thought, well, maybe you know, maybe providing an experience like that is a good way to, to onboard more people to to the command line. Because I, I do think, I, I think two things, like number one, people going forward are going to need to learn how public-private 
pair cryptography works. I just think there's no getting around that. And number two, I think more and more people need to become familiar with the command line because it is kind of a trust-minimized way of interacting with the computer. So all that to say that I also uh, am a a fan of cold card because I think that's like one of the most trust-minimized hardware wallets out there, just given the design is basically as simple as, as you could hope for. It doesn't support coins that aren't Bitcoin. All of the firmware is open source. So presumably you can audit everything. So I'm a big fan of cold core. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, cold card. And so I, basically I, I wound up writing a script that facilitates air-gapped communication with the cold card and then translates output from the cold card into data that Bitcoin Core can understand. And so, and then kind of provides a graphical interface for, you know, interacting with with both of these. So basically, it's just a really lightweight wallet. It's about 200, 2,500 lines of code with zero dependencies, zero install process that allows you to use Bitcoin Core and your cold card to, you know, manage your coins. Okay, so... James, a lot of new Bitcoiners are, you know, coming onto the Bitcoin scene, learning about Bitcoin, listening to Bitcoin Magazine podcasts. Some of them might be listening to this and, you know, a little bewildered why you go through so much pain to remove dependencies to like make something that you have read through and through and you can use trustlessly from like a high level philosophical and even like execution perspective, you know, why is it so important? Why do you put so much pain, you know, work into building something like this? Yeah, that's a good question because I think, you know, when you see security guys or people who are focused on security, like go down these rabbit holes of trying to you know, drastically simplify everything and scrutinize everything, it can seem a little bit excessive. But I think the reality is that, especially as Bitcoin goes up in value, we're going to see increasing rates of what I call generally supply chain attacks. You know, so there are two two really good examples of this. Number one is that the, I think it was BitPay's copay wallet a few years ago was actually affected by a vulnerability like this where the wallet itself, so, so in general, when you're building software, you need to pull in what are called dependencies. And dependencies are basically just like code that's pre-written as a kind of toolbox by other people that you as a software engineer can pull in and make use of. So like, for example, when I go and write, you know, a Bitcoin wallet, I don't want to rewrite the SHA-256 hash algorithm from scratch. That just doesn't make any sense. And so I pull in a dependency that gives me access to that code that someone else has already written. So obviously dependencies are, are a good thing in general, but they also represent somewhat of a risk because if you don't go through and read all of your dependencies, or if someone, you know, maybe updates one of your dependencies without you being fully conscious of it and they insert some malicious code, that can obviously be problematic. So this actually happened with BitPay's wallet a few years ago. Somebody snuck in uh, an exploit into the JavaScript dependencies that I think basically siphoned off coins for any transfer amount over 10 BTC. So, you know, as Bitcoin becomes more profit, as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, attacks like these become more profitable. The second example that's you know more general than Bitcoin is this recent Solar Winds hack. And you know one aspect of of how this hack happened is some developer tooling way 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 upstream of Solar Winds itself was attacked. There's a 
a popular development suite called JetBrains or a developer tool company called JetBrains. And it turns out some of their code was compromised. And that's a dependency that's like way, way, way upstream of the actual product itself. So, you know, as, as Bitcoin becomes more and more important to secure, I think we have to get more and more paranoid about the dependencies that we're pulling in. And certainly, if something is not absolutely necessary for management of coins in particular, then I don't believe it should be a part of the process. So I think increasingly, we're going to have to get really serious about figuring out whether the software that we use is what we expect it is and whether it's kind of the minimal set of software or the minimal amount of trust to, uh, to put into this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is an example of Bitcoin fixes this by breaking this. You know, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. Bitcoin's existence is going to break a lot of the bad software practices that the world is built on today. I mean, it might be worse than, you know, what people thought Y2K was going to be in terms of, you know, bad systems just having an incentive to get to get attacked. Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is this is yet another kind of positive externality of Bitcoin's deployment into the world is that it's going to teach us how you actually secure software, because I think in many cases, you don't really know if your software is secure because it's not like there is sort of an immediate gain that somebody would get by, you know, hacking it. Whereas with Bitcoin, you've got like, what is it, you know, a multi-hundred billion dollar bounty now on on the total coins out there. So I, I think you're right. So, James, want to talk a little bit about like the Bitcoin development ecosystem in general. Obviously, you kind of went through the chain code process. You worked at chain code. DG Labs also does some funding around there. I know that there's a lot of other projects that are popping up. You know, what's kind of like your assessment of how Bitcoin developers are kind of being trained and what's that culture like? Yeah, it's a really tough thing to do because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, doing the core development in my spare time. Even as someone who was in that environment for two and a half years doing it, you know, day in and day out as my nine to five. I find it's it's really challenging in a part-time capacity to kind of keep tabs on all the development. And I find that like I, I can barely keep my head above water with the Assume UTXO project that I'm kind of working on. So I think the first thing to to take into mind here is that Bitcoin Core involves a lot of context and not only do you need kind of the immediate context, but it helps to have historical context about like why parts of the system developed to be the way that they were. You know, there are a lot of sort of, I don't know, like evolutionary design choices. And for example, the peer to peer network, you know, and it's become incredibly hardened over the years, despite the fact that there are still, you know, points where it, it needs some attention, but you just don't have an appreciation for how those things came to be or why they came to be if you weren't sitting there kind of staring at the code for years and years. So it's really, really tough to onboard people to this development ecosystem. And it's 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 obviously really important to do so because we need a lot of people scrutinizing the code and making sure that, you know, it stays in a healthy state. But I think luckily in general, the funding story is getting better and better. I think everybody realizes the crucial role of engineers and developers and you know people who are just generally working on the open source end of things. So I think increasingly there's there's money for all this stuff, but in terms of how how quickly you can onboard somebody, you know, it really it really can take a long time, you know, even even people with the kind of right technical chops, you know, people who have been working on C++ systems for a long time, 
again, there's a kind of specific mode of operation in terms of the way that Bitcoin core development happens. So it's it's not an easy thing to bring people into. And I think it's it's important that we try. But to some extent, you know, I think the right people end up kind of finding it at some point. I'm not saying that like trying to recruit people is a, is a bad thing, but I think a lot of people who end up being really successful contributors are just kind of drawn to it endogenously. And so, so anyway, that's a long winded way of saying it's, it's, it's hard to grow development talent, but I think it'll happen. And I think the funding is there for it now. Yeah. I feel like 2020, if there's a silver lining for Bitcoin, that interest in even marketing benefits have have kind of like really emerged for for funding bitcoin development which i think is positive and now it's really about you know how how do these funds get funneled in ways that can support the protocol in the best way yeah absolutely i've been working a little bit with a nascent organization called OpenSats. Uh, we haven't done like a big release or anything like that but it's it's going to be yet another you know open source software development fund um, that's Bitcoin centric. And just in our preliminary conversations with potential donors, I've been really impressed at how willing everybody is in the Bitcoin space to allocate some money to to continue the open source stuff. So I'm pretty optimistic on all that. So you kind of talked about like there's a ton of context that's needed to actually contribute to Bitcoin. I'm sure that's true, like technically and historically and how decisions were made. But I've also noticed that Bitcoin developers are sometimes the most ideological Bitcoiners out there. Like when I see guys like Ben Kaufman and Nicholas Dorier post about technical things as well as just being Bitcoiners on the Internet, it it gets me so excited because like it's so clear that, you know, the people building this tech are aligned with the people who are using it and want to use it and are advocating for it. Can you kind of talk about like where does ideology kind of fit into the the culture of the Bitcoin dev community? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. It, it definitely heartens me to see that a lot of the engineers involved in this project are ideologically aligned with the technology itself, because I think the reality is, and this is a bit of a semantics game, but I think the reality is that Bitcoin is inherently an ideological technology. I guess you could you could argue, and I call it semantics, because I guess you could argue in some sense that it's one of the only non-ideological technologies in that it, you know, the very idea of censorship resistance just means that nobody can tell you that you can't transact. And so, you know, you might be able to, you might say that nobody can enforce their ideology on you with Bitcoin. You know, nobody can decide to co-opt the monetary network and go on, you know, an ideological experiment like quantitative easing using Bitcoin. So I think in many ways, you know, you can either argue it's an extremely ideological project or it's one of the only non-ideological projects out there. But to get to your question, I, 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 I'm really glad that, you know, guys like Ben Kaufman, you know, are, are out there and Nicholas Dorier and, and everybody else who, who just kind many of others. Many, <laughs> many, many others. Many others. Pretty yeah, much everyone. <laughs> I, I think so, because I think if you decide to allocate a lot of time to Bitcoin, I think you understand what it's all about because the, the consequences are kind of inescapable. I, I mean, anybody who's working on Bitcoin who thinks that the government should play an active role in like allocating society's resources in a, in a major way, I, I think is seriously confused. So, so Bitcoin is inherently, you know, like if, if you're working on it, I, I think you buy into the ethos that, 
individuals should be able to save and transact without interference. But it is that's a really important thing to to keep alive. And part of me wants to say that it'll always remain alive among the people who work on Bitcoin. But I, I think, you know, you can draw some interesting analogs to, say, for example, the Constitution of the United States, because that, that you know, it's hard to get more ideological than that in terms of the, the raw contents of the document. And like Bitcoin, you know, the Constitution and the framers established this, this system that was supposed to work to some sort of secure individual freedoms. And yet, you know, we've seen that that system kind of gradually erode. I'm not saying that that will happen with Bitcoin. But I am saying that, you know, we don't we certainly don't want it to happen with Bitcoin. And despite the fact that there are these kind of technological impediments to a degradation of the goals of the system happening, just given the way that, you know, the incentive structure works with miners, I think we want to make sure that everybody involved, you know, ha- has in mind, like, like what the system is supposed to exist for, what it's supposed to do. Because, you know, if at some point down the road, you know, many, many years down the road, if someone's debating, you know, some some core developers or whatever are debating whether to in- introduce a two percent inflation, you know, to make it quote unquote fair in terms of providing a new distribution of Bitcoin to to users or miners or whoever, you know, a question like that might come up. And again, I think like the the technological reality sets in because if if a question like that were to come up, well, then you know the miners probably wouldn't adopt it because that would that would probably hamper their profits and it would be pretty trivial to fork off, you know, the Bitcoin core implementation and find some, find some maintainers who are sympathetic to the original and sort of immutable goals of Bitcoin, which is a fixed supply and and censorship resistance. So I think it's an interesting thing to watch. And I think for right now, I'm just glad for it, you know, because I like shit posts as much as anybody else. And, I love being on Twitter and, and, you know, feeling like there's some camaraderie and some, um, you know, like it, it, it just feels good because like as, as a libertarian, I don't have to tell anybody this, like, you know, the years before Bitcoin was, were, were in existence really lonely. And, you know, you were kind of basically ignored in, in most serious political circles and there was really no hope of, of getting much done. And so Bitcoin is this, practical application of libertarianism now where where we can be a real community and we can have a real project to work on and and actual goals to work towards and just given you know the adoption and the market cap i mean it seems like the world is kind of paying attention and so i think that's really exciting libertarians playing the political game is never a winning strategy (laughs) playing the the out innovate game is just so much sexier and to be honest anyone in my opinion who's like a libertarian who dismisses bitcoin is they're just a libertarian that likes to lose. They're comfortable losing. They're not comfortable winning. And they're they're going to keep staying in the political game, which I I think is is a lost cause, in my opinion. When I look at the political game, I'm like, thank God I have Bitcoin, so I don't have to worry about this anymore. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It, it really does baffle my mind. I've tried to... I'm trying to take a cue from Bitstein and, and can construct a sort of like mimetic program to try and go after stranded libertarians and gold bugs because this is this is our chance and if you care about individual freedom and you're not and you're like poo-pooing bitcoin i mean i just i i I can't understand that and i really feel bad because you know like you might look back years later and go i could have been a part of that but instead i was like i don't know donating to the cato institute or something and maybe it's still a worthwhile goal but (laughs) 
CK's Go, uh, signaling thumbs it. down. No, no, it's <laughs> not. The yeah. worthwhile goal yeah. is donating to the Nakamoto Institute, donating to HRF or a- any of these institutions that are are popping up and and focusing on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the future, not lobbying politicians that. It's just a, uh, a libertarian in politics is like a fish out of water. And then Bitcoin is mm-hmm. like, let's just put the entire world underwater. So <laughs> it just like completely changed the game. And it put the world in context that makes sense for a freedom loving person. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I can't remember who said this, but there was there's some quote along the lines of you can't tear institutions down. You have to build replacements. And I think Bitcoin is the perfect example of that. But yeah, I mean, participation in, in the U.S. political process at this point is just it's a farce. I, I think it's mostly a means to to pacify people and make them think that they have some kind of control. The reality is that, you know, voting red or blue, I think, is 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 not going to materially affect anything. And, you know, you see the situation where like third parties aren't even allowed on the debate stage. I mean, libertarians have been trying to get a seat at the presidential debates for I don't know how many years now. And there's there's absolutely no incentive for the bureaucracies that run our institutions to allow for that because they have a nice, tidy kind of means of control by way of these two political parties that are dominant. So to 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 really think that like anything meaningful, any any meaningful reform can come out of the existing political infrastructure in the United States is a very dark misconception, I think. So let's zoom out a little bit and let's talk about macro and talk about 2020. I know that you listened to FedWatch podcast with me and Ansel Lindner, where we talk about Bitcoin and macro. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective? I know that you write about this and you've been thinking about this, you know, pretty intensely for the past few months. Yeah, you know, I would say for the past three years, I've been I've been really fixated on on macroeconomics. I I think, you know, when I got into Bitcoin, I had a, a very, very coarse understanding of everything. And I you know, I knew sort of generally money printing was bad, but I didn't really know about the mechanics of how all this stuff works. And luckily, you know, now that podcasts are are very plentiful in terms of, you know, macro voices and your podcast and the investors podcast, there there are a lot of people now talking about macro because I think what's what's really interesting is, you know, value investing is another it's it's almost an analog to the libertarian stuff and that I have a lot of sympathy for these people, but they are just completely like out of the game in terms of if you're a value investor, if you're really like discounting cash flows and trying to evaluate the purchase of equities on that basis, well, you're apparently unaware that that style of investing is predicated on a stable money supply. And when we have the kind of like monetary fireworks going on in the background that we do now, it doesn't make any sense to, to to sort of size things up in terms of individual stocks. I think. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's money to be made there in, in rare cases, but the the sort of noble calling of value investing is 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 roadkill at this point because we don't, you know, be, because the money supply can expand, you know, arbitrarily. So macro's been a really fascinating thing to watch. I think getting familiar with the mechanics of exactly how quantitative easing works, you know, exactly why, like how debt monetization works and how it's already happening now in terms of basically the treasury needing to fund their general account. And so they issue bonds at auctions and, you know, primary dealer banks who who basically have a special arrangement with the government show up at these auctions and they are obliged to put a bid in for any new treasuries issued. 
So they spend some cash to buy the treasuries. And then the Fed comes along in some cases later that day, certainly within a few days, and then pays a higher price for the treasuries than, than they paid at auction in order to basically fund you know, the money that the treasury needs. So, so you're essentially like, I guess I don't pay as much attention to the macro stuff now as I do, because I'm, I'm not really learning anything about the mechanics anymore. The, the big upshot for me is that like modern monetary theory is in vogue. The mechanisms for, for implementing it are here. They're already in use. Basically, if the government wants to create money to allocate it, it, it can and is. And so, you know, I, I used to, one of the trades that I made over last year was buying what are called Euro dollar futures, which is basically a speculation on the short-term interest rate of the U.S. dollar. And it, it, it sort of was obvious to me at the time that, that that interest rate was going to zero, which it did when, when COVID hit. But now I think there's just like not much debate anymore about, you know, I, I think it was much more interesting like, like in 2018 back when there was when Jay Powell was trying to raise rates again and and maybe trying to restore some kind of integrity or normalcy to the operation of the Federal Reserve. I mean, I won't go so far and say that was his stated goal, but it sort of looked like, oh, OK, well, interest rates might be going up again you know, that might kind of prick this insane equity bubble that's happening. This this will be interesting to watch. But I think since the Fed did that dovish pivot and have been just slashing interest rates again, they've basically come out and said, like, hey, look, this is this is the new regime. You know, like interest rates are not going back up anytime soon. I don't think they're ever going up. So that for me made macro a little bit interesting, less interesting to pay attention to because it was like, Okay, well, the upshot of this is just that, like, the U.S. dollar is going to die a death, slow, quick. I don't know, but like, I just need to be buying Bitcoin. That's like the only means of escaping this, and I need to be buying Bitcoin and like communicating to other people as rapidly as I can. This is what's happening, and like, if you want out of it, you know, okay, maybe you can try gold. I, I think there are a bunch of problems with gold, but like, Bitcoin is is the way out. So. Okay, so let's zoom out again and like for a gold investor, value investor, maybe someone who's just getting into Bitcoin, why is Bitcoin so much better than gold? Why don't bonds work in this case? Why you know, why do other safe haven type of strategies not work? Yeah, so bonds are an interesting case right now, and I had a Twitter thread about this a few months ago, but bonds like every other traditional security have turned into essentially a Ponzi game where the real yield on bonds is negative at this point. I don't, I don't think anybody's questioning that. You know, you get a 30-year bond at 1.5%, you know, inflation at, at the most conservative estimates is, say, 2% a year. Well, you know, you have a negative 50 basis point yield on that bond. So nobody in their right mind is going to pay, you know, $100 today for $95.5 in 30 years. Where the appreciation in bonds comes in is if I buy a bond, you know, let's say at 1.5%. And I think that the Fed is going to try yield curve control, meaning they're going to go out and ensure that yields on treasuries do not rise. So they're going to buy as many treasuries as they need to keep yields down. That might drive down yields in the treasury market, meaning that like I've made a profit by buying bonds at 1.5%. 
when you know the yield has gone down to say 0.5%. So I think you see you see people trying to rush into the treasury market some some people you know maybe maybe for collateral purposes but maybe because they're speculating that basically the government's just going to keep buying bonds and so like you might that might be a good trade you know I I don't know that strikes me as crazy because uh, again the fundamentals of what you're doing um, are just are just totally out of whack you know you're you're, you're buying a 30 year obligation to this currency that's like rapidly eroding. So that makes bonds uh, a non-starter for me. Gold, again, is like formal libertarianism and value investing is like one of these noble, but now sort of ill-conceived notions because, you know, and I've bought and sold a decent amount of physical gold over the past year. And the sales process was frankly really eye-opening for me. And I think illustrates a lot of the benefits of Bitcoin. You know, so when I went and sold my gold, I had to call somebody up on the phone. I had to negotiate a price with her. The sale was confirmed like a day later. She then had to send me two separate shipping labels and I had to package up a total of four boxes, take all that stuff to the UPS store, you know, and at that point the gold was neither in my custody nor the buyer's custody. It was just kind of in the ether somewhere in, in UPS's infrastructure. And so if it had gotten lost then, well, then I'd be in this big mess about, you know, making some kind of insurance claim and hoping that I get reimbursed for that. And then, you know, six, seven days later, because the sale happened to fall on a holiday weekend, I finally got, you know, a wire transfer that there were the proceeds of the sale. So, you know, compare that to wanting to liquidate Bitcoin, being able to do so 24, seven, 365 days a year, you know, from your couch where like the biggest delay is waiting, you know, for the block, you know, the three block confirmations that the exchange requires being able to immediately liquidate it with no risk outside of, you know, the custody of your counterparty. I mean, that's just like a completely different experience. It's a completely different level of risk than, you know, it is to to ship and insure gold and deal with all the counterparties along the way there. So that alone makes gold sort of obviated in my mind you know obviously gold has like this sort of his gold has two things going for it it has the historical longevity behind it and uh, it has the fact that central banks around the world own it which is you know i guess maybe a good good for the price but but i I don't see it going anywhere from a kind of fundamental point of view and i think bitcoin is essentially just a wholesale replacement yeah i mean like what does it take to replace something that has Lindy? It's probably a 10x improvement, right? And Bitcoin mm-hmm. is probably a 1,000x improvement you know, across the board, whether it comes to validating, custodying, transferring, holding, known monetary supply. Yeah. And, and good, luck trying to, good luck trying to escape a, you know, a despotic regime with your gold stash. You know, numerous people have been caught trying to smuggle pretty modest amounts of gold out of you know, whatever jurisdiction they're in. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can memorize 24 words and have nothing physical on you, go anywhere and then have access to a liquid asset. So, I mean, it just like it, like you're saying, you know, forget 10x. It's that's that's a way bigger improvement than that. Yeah. I mean, I'm bullish on Bitcoin. And I I think just to kind of go back to something we're talking about before, like how will the, the future users of Bitcoin uphold its principles, right? Its nature. 
Like, I'm actually not concerned about that at all because I, I truly believe that as people adopt Bitcoin, they start behaving and getting their behaviors reinforced by Bitcoin itself. And and that has inherent values, right? We, we're all kind of living in this fiat world. So obviously everyone is being reinforced by the money they use today, which ha- is nothing like Bitcoin, right? So if everyone adopts Bitcoin, I just can't see a world where people don't value 21 million. They don't value like, you know, maintaining this network. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I think you're right. I, I, I hope you're right too. But it really is kind of, you know, different people learn in different ways. And I think some people can sit there and read Mises and understand, you know, the implications of, of why individual freedoms work. And then other people need concrete examples when they're learning something, you know, like you might, instead of reading a book on, you know, engines, you might have to work on your car to figure that out. And I I think a similar process is going to happen with people where as soon as they take possession of their Bitcoin or have a little bit of Bitcoin or even see a price appreciation from Bitcoin, they're going to start to become more open to these ideas. They're going to start to ask why, you know, they're essentially fleeing the dollar and where the dollar went wrong and what Bitcoin is doing right. So I, I hope you're right. And I hope, you know, more people kind of realize the underpinnings of this technology and why it's why it's working. Yeah, absolutely. James, we're kind of getting to the end of our time. I have one more question for you, and then I want to give you time for a last word and to plug yourself. But this is a Tim Ferriss question. If you could put up a billboard that everyone in the world could see, what would it be? Hmm. Take as long as you need. We can cut out the pause. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. You know, on the one hand, I think one great chart is the performance, the purchasing power of the dollar over the last, say, 100 years. I think that's a really important one and, and should prompt some questions. But I, I think more generally, I, I want to say that Bitcoin can kind of put you in into sort of an aggressive or defensive mode of thinking about the world. You know, right now, so much of our goal is about being contra to the existing system and, to, you know, to some extent, criticizing, which I think is right. And I, and I think right now that's the, what the world should should be focusing on is retrenching fundamentals like our monetary system. But I also think in life you you have to be focused on on the possible and you have to be focused on the optimistic and what could be, which is why I think it's really important to continue reading fiction. So, you know, while I think the message the world needs to understand right now is are, are the problems associated with fiat currency, I think that's ultimately kind of an admonishment you know, or, or a pessimistic message. And I wish I had an optimistic message that just kind of sprang to mind, something that that made people excited about the future, because I think that's what life should be about. But I guess that's much more of a personal thing than, than you know, the destruction of fiat currency, which is a, a very general thing. So I guess I'll stick with that. Maybe just read fiction would, would be a good message. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of the the value of the dollar against Bitcoin or the purchasing power of the dollar over time, I think Crypto Graffiti has you covered. He has a BTC versus USD campaign where he's putting up these electronic billboards in every city that has a Federal Reserve Bank. So he's already on that. And uh, one of the graphics is like this animated graphic of the purchasing power of the dollar, like burning away amongst Mm -hmm. others. So really great campaign by Crypto Graffiti. Yeah, props to him. That's that's excellent. And, you know, I think I, I'd seen that somewhere earlier. So maybe that kind of subconsciously infected me for that <laughs> question. But he's he's a fantastic person to have in Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm really thankful for all the work he does. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, I think before this show airs, uh, we're going to have a show talking to him about the campaign. So if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to that, make sure to go check that out in the Bitcoin magazine feed. James, I want to give you some time to, to give your last word and to plug yourself. Sure. Thanks. I don't have too much to say. I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at James OB or, you know, whatever the next decentralized platform that we're all migrating to. I'll probably be James OB on there as well. I'm James OB on GitHub. If you want to see what I'm up to, usually my activities is posted there. And yeah, I just, I think it's going to be a really fun year. I think if you're on the fringe of making a, you know, some kind of a full-time commitment to Bitcoin, I'd absolutely encourage you to do that because ultimately the scarcest resource is time and you're only alive for so long. And so, you know, figure out what's really important to you and, and, and act on that as soon as you possibly can, because I guarantee that you're not going to regret devoting more time to something as important as this. Awesome. I love it. I love it. You guys, make sure to go follow James. I have thoroughly enjoyed following him for the past few years. Make sure to follow you, me man. at CK Snarks. Make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine at Bitcoin Magazine and head over to BitcoinMagazine.com. That's where our content will live, never censored. So check us out on socials as well as the website. And yeah, with that being said, peace. All right. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.